Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome to Season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, where as always, you will find evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to inform your practice. It's a big week, folks, in the world of soccer, or football as the rest of the world calls it. Arsenal and Chelsea squaring off tonight in the Europa final to try and punch a ticket to next year's Champions League. And of course, this weekend, Tottenham and Liverpool are set to clash in the Champions League final. So, the perfect time to chat with former Liverpool FC member of the sports science and performance nutrition team, Dr. Liam Gallagher, is on the show. Liam did his PhD at the prestigious Liverpool John Moores University, interned at Everton Football Club during his studies, and of course worked with Liverpool FC during his PhD between 2013 and 2016, and today is the lead sports scientist at the Crew Alexandria Football Club. In this episode, Liam shares his insights on the physical demands of pro football, how glycogen status and type 2X fibers are impacted by game intensity, as well as his research on nutrition in professional English Premiership League players. Liam also talks about refueling post-game, the real-life challenges that performance nutritionists face, the key relationship between a team chef and the performance nutritionist, and much, much more in this episode. Awesome insights here from Liam. I highlighted Liam's work in EPL players in my new book, Peak, Chapter 6, all about team sport nutrition, and his insights and his research in this space are really impressive, so I definitely think you're going to enjoy this episode. As usual, you can find the links and a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And if you are interested in more on this topic, then definitely circle back to Season 3, Episode 14, with Dr. Samuel MP, PhD on periodized nutrition and train low strategies. And on the monitoring side of things, Season 3, Episode 7, with Dr. Andrew Flatt, talking heart rate variability monitoring, and team sports. All right, well, before we start, a quick word from the ep- this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. You can use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10, at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com and defy the norm. All right, on to the show, Season 3, Episode 20. Enjoy. Liam, thanks so much for uh, making the time today. No problem. Awesome. Listen, I know you're a very busy man. Um, Looking forward to diving into all things performance nutrition and football here today. 
But maybe before we jump into this topic, you can give us a little bit more background on yourself and, and your career path so far. Yeah, so um, back in 2009, I started a sports science degree at Liverpool John Moores University. Uh, did that for obviously three years. Um, tried my utmost hardest to get any little snippets of work experience as much as I possibly could, just to try and you know get my name out there, seeing what work. Unfortunately, I was relatively unsuccessful. I got weeks work experience at two clubs over here in England, at uh, Blackburn Rovers and Burnley Football Club, uh, working out with their academies there. But generally, it, it wasn't it wasn't much. It was sort of going into the clubs and seeing what they're doing. Um, after that, I did my coaching badges. Whilst well, I started my coaching badges whilst working at Everton Football Club as an intern. I got that during my master's year, so I worked with the first team and the academy there uh, during my master year. Then it was sort of I slid very very quickly from that. I slid into a PhD as my master's was going on and as the internship at Everton came to an end so nice. uh, the PhD I was very fortunate enough to be working with the first team of Liverpool Football Club uh, I worked there for three years which was unreal experience it was you know going into work every day working I'm also a Liverpool fan so I was working with my heroes incredible and um, so I, you know working day in day out there I started my PhD there whilst working full-time at the club um, you know, we were researching on the guys, but we were also doing day-to-day roles as well. Um, after that, uh, I took a, a year out in Hungary. I was working as the head of, head of fitness out at Video Tom Football Club. I think they now rechanged the name as Molvidi. Um, recently had a good success in the Europa League. Um, after a year, unfortunately, as most things in football, the the manager left his position and unfortunately I went with him. I came back, managed to finish my PhD in two months and started at Crew Alexandra um, over here in England, which is quite a traditional English club. I'm now the head of sports science and medicine there. So I've been there now since September 2017. So, so as much as I've learned over time um, in, into this role to be in now. Well, listen, that's that's incredible, and you know, no better person to talk to around performance nutrition and and football. And before we dig into that, I mean, understanding the physical demands of a sport is obviously essential for really providing you know evidence based fueling strategies. So, could you perhaps walk listeners through you know a general breakdown of some of the distances covered in a football match? You know, how much low to moderate versus high intensity running, those types of things. Yeah, sure. So. Originally, like match analysis research, it, it got started being done over four decades ago by uh, Thomas Riley. There's actually pictures of him, I think, on the John Moore's website somewhere. You'll be able to find them where he's actually undertaken a notational analysis at Goodison Park. So it was actually quite interesting that I began my sort of professional career, you know, working at Everton, and and he's actually doing his work there. Um, but typically. It's progressed a lot more since then. We now have semi-automatic cameras or even players wearing GPS in matches now. Mm-hmm. So, But typically it's understood that players cover between 10 and 13 kilometres in a match with distances, you know, high-speed running, which is anything over 19.8 kilometres an hour, or sprinting, which is anything over 25.2 kilometres an hour. 
seven to twelve percent for high speed running of that total distance, and then one to four percent of that total distance sprinting. So it, it's really not a great deal they spend during those high intensity moments, but it's these actions which have been proven to be crucial for the uh, for the sport and performance. Yeah, so, it's, it's really interesting, especially when I contrasted as well to, to basketball in terms of the stops and starts and the accelerations and decelerations and you know I know muscle glycogen is obviously massively affected during a football match what does that look like for a for a player who's a, a starter who's logging you know full-time minutes in terms of glycogen status post-match yeah so I don't actually know this but my thoughts are that it, it's very much position specific so if a, if you've got a centre back, then they'll be covering. They won't be covering anywhere near as much distance as a as a central midfielder. Nowhere near as much distance at high speed running, but they'll be doing a lot more, you know, accelerations where they're jockeying backwards and forwards and pressing the pressing attackers, uh, them sorts of motions. So, you know, they, they'll probably have muscle glycogen stores of around four hundred millimoles per kilo of dry weight muscle, and at half time. They've been found by in a classical research study by uh, Salton back in 1973 that they were almost depleted even just at half time and then completely depleted at the end of the match. Wow. So, and then skipping forward 33 years, uh, Peter, Peter Krustrup did a study on, I think it was Danish players. Uh, he, he found that they started the match with 150 millimoles of dry weight uh, per kilo of dry weight in the muscle. And then that decreased to 225 at the end of the match. Now, we when I first seen that, I was thinking, but surely they're not depleted because they've still got actual carbohydrates in the muscle. Mm-hmm. Like, but if you look further into that, the muscle fibres which are responsible for high-speed running, high-intensity actions, which was the type 2A and type 2X fibres, they were almost 50% of them were depleted, completely depleted. Wow. So, if they're the muscles which are responsible for, they're the fibers which are responsible for the high speed running and sprinting, those high intensity actions, then and they're completely depleted at the end of the football match. Surely, we need to be doing something to to stop this. Yeah, I mean it's it's really fascinating, and you know, of course, changes in game frequency and you know the associated training loads here in game and practice obviously yeah. have implications here in the nutrition strategies. You know, given that the metabolic demands, the daily ex- energy expenditure are, are so high, so you know, you've done some work, of course, in terms of specific weekly training scenarios. So, you know, work on one game, two game, three game per week schedule. So, how does that flush out in terms of um, you know what you found in your work and how it impacts a, a football player? Yeah, so you know, we found that we we this was one of my first studies in my PhD, and it it, it went back, and we didn't actually know what what does a footballer do in a typical week? And we wanted to find out, okay, how much total distance do they do? How much high-speed running do they do? What is the major percentage? Is the major percentage of that done in training or is the major percentage of that done in match play? So we got looking at training load um, within the season and James Morton, who is the sports nutritionist, is uh, now Professor James Morton at Liverpool, John Moores. He's done a lot of work now with Team Sky and... Um, and science in sport. So he was the nutritionist at the club, and he was asking me, "What what do the what do these lads actually do? How are we how are we quantifying that?" And there was no real formal documentation in and around that. So 
he was asking me how can how can we give nutritional guidelines to players when we don't actually know what they're doing um and at the time there makes wasn't, sense yeah so there wasn't much research out there around training load at all really um so we wanted to look at how does the gain frequency how does the build up of fixtures change change what the lads are actually uh, expending what what is that leading to more high speed running because they've got two games in a week instead of three you know is that or are they getting more sprinting what what is that actually doing for them are they getting more recovery sessions in so everything's done by matches and then or is everything done in training is the training session matching what they would get in a typical game you know and we found that a lot of the total distance was getting more total distance was getting done in the three game per week than it was in the one game per week even though they had those training sessions and then also we had the the high speed running and sprinting was the, a lot more was getting done in the three game week than the one game week which when you sit down and think about it if they're playing three games in, a, in the space of seven days you know it, it probably makes sense but no one had ever actually told us this we just assumed it so mm-hmm. we document it and put it out there and then we also wanted to look at how how that training how that training week sort of went with regards to periodization typically when it was saturday saturday so they've got a saturday game they've got two days off after the match to completely recover then they come in if they get in on a saturday they come in on the tuesday and then they work through a four-day lead-in, match day minus four, three, two, one, into the Sunday, into the Saturday again. So, is there any strategies that we could put, potentially put in place? Because if the training load is nowhere near as high as what it would be in a two-game or three-game week, we could potentially reduce the carbohydrates in that week in order to facilitate adaptations. Absolutely. So yeah, and you know, we wanted to facilitate the adaptations. We basically found that in those one game per week scenarios that they only they only ran three to five kilometers so we were thinking three to five k when instead they're doing you know some of these guys at the top level are doing 13 kilometers in a match you know it's likelihood that these these sessions they might be intense but they're not nowhere near going to be depleting muscle glycogen or they're not going to need that if they're no longer than an hour they're not going to be even you know even need to take any fluid, any carbohydrates on board during the training session itself. Yeah, it's amazing when you start to quantify these things and really put a number to what's going on. That you start to really, it really opens your eyes to to how different fueling strategies can be can be changed and modified and, and, and improved to to impact those adaptations and especially in training, right? Yeah. So, like, we we stepped into this study, and I think there was. I think when we started this study, there may have been four four studies done, one which wasn't even published at the time. It, it got published after it, but it was someone who uh, who worked at Liverpool before us who did one of the studies, so that made us aware of the sort of training demands. And then obviously with GPS, we knew the sort of training demands as well, but there was nothing documented, there was nothing set in stone to, to send out to other clubs to say this is what the training demands are. And what are we actually fueling for? I mean, it's a great question, the idea of what are we actually fueling for, and it's definitely one that, you know, in the yeah. NBA, you talk about this idea of, of having some data on what the athletes are actually doing, and that's something that 
you know, a lot of sports scientists are just trying to get a hold of. And if we think of the stop and start nature, the accelerations and decelerations, and, you know, if you're reporting in football, 50% of those fast twitch fibers being empty or partially empty, Liam, if you had to speculate here a little bit around, you know, professional basketball, what would you think would be some of the implications there for these players who are logging two or three games a week? Yeah, you can you can imagine that you know, if these guys aren't replenishing their glycogen stores after matches, then they're likely going to be starting the next competitive game with without maximised muscle glycogen stores. And I don't know what that would do chronically to players, you know, if they are. And it, it's likely that they're probably a little bit like the studies, which which I did. They probably eat a lot more on game day. That perceived as a as a as a training day as a get a day where they need to eat more because they have a higher load that day but then even on the training days they should be still probably eating the same amount of carbohydrates as they are on that match day yeah it's impressive especially with the back-to-backs that they'll play as well and getting on a plane late at night and going to a new town and and then again playing another game less than 24 hours after the initial one that's that's actually bringing on to a point it came up in um we did a study on the meal distribution of the players, so how that how that comes about. So what is the training day look like? What what does the protein distribution look like at breakfast, dinner? Uh, sorry, I'll speak uh, I'll speak properly English, proper English. Uh, breakfast, lunch, and uh, and even meal. Um, and how does it, how is that skewed? So are they eating a lot more in the evening meal? Should they be eating a lot more with the lunch because that's just after training? Should they be fueling the training session if it's going to be a tough training session? a little bit more before or should they be going even low carb if it's going to be a light training session um you know how, how are they doing that and then also what are they doing after before and after the matches and in one of the studies uh, i think it was day two on the meal distribution study the, that was a night game at home and the players the, there was food available to players after that night game but it wasn't compulsory to go in to eat. Mm-hmm. So if that's not compulsory, the players are just going to go home. And they went home, they maybe had a protein shake or, or a recovery shake, maybe a couple of slices of pizza after the game, which was in the changing rooms. And then as soon as they did that, they went home and didn't eat anything until the following morning for breakfast. But these guys have got to play a game in another two days. And, you know, since since 2001, we've known that we need to replenish muscle glycogen stores by giving them 1.2 grams per kilo of carbohydrates every hour for, for the next four hours. So we, from that study, we put in a process in place in order to try to get them that 1.2 grams per kilo. And Liam, does that involve things, you know, immediately post-game around some liquid nutrition and then adding on some, you know, the meals afterwards or what are some yeah, so some strategies you, you that you might much, use yeah you can pretty much get recovery shakes now if you shop in the right place that near enough give you that 1.2 grams per kilo and then you know it might be a, a, a some chicken goujons or you know any anything after the game that they can eat immediately but a lot of the a lot of the players after they played i'm sure it's the same in basketball as well they're not they're, hungry <laughs> ironically nutritionist you're pulling your hair out you're thinking please just eat they say they're not hungry and you know but if you can get that shake on board with them then you say okay if you're not hungry and don't eat for another hour then because that's when you need to eat 
So then have your have your meal in an hour after that. But we we come up with ways like giving players recovery packs after go to go home with, which might have had uh, some fruit, some fruit in it, maybe apple juice, um, like a carbohydrate bar, like a muesli bar, mm-hmm. and things like that, and but even Haribo sweets, things like that that they're going to eat. Incentivize them to get those carbohydrates in, right? Just get as much carbohydrates as they as they can into the muscles after the match and and make the meat really but that's that's something that i've i've brought forward even even in the the you know the fourth tier of the football league and we we have at the minute we have post match uh, like meal prep specific meal preps for each player depending on their weight so they they put in an order to me what they want and i work out how much carbohydrates this is every week so i work out how, how much carbohydrates they need after the game mm-hmm. and then they have a protein shake and then they take away the post-match meal and I tell them to have it an hour later as soon as the match finished. So that's just a way that I can tick off the first two hours which are controllable to me and they, they take that away and then if they're really clued on they know that they need to be taking on lots of fluids and taking on extra carbohydrates in the hours after that as well. Yeah, it's such a key part, isn't it, to control the controllables like you're doing there in terms yeah. of the hours that you can really influence them, which is that immediate post-game, and then, as you mentioned, the giving them that pack of food to be able to take home, and yeah. you know, hopefully they're going to be eating that as well, and so at least you've covered some bases there, which, <clears throat> again, I think for a lot of folks listening in who are would always be assuming that players are just going to automatically be hyper-compliant to all these things, I mean... At the end of the day, they're they're humans too, I guess, right? And and yeah. a, lot, a lot of them are pretty young as well, and can kind of get away with things or feel like they get away with things, and that sets up some roadblocks and challenges for for performance nutritionists, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I think I, I, I don't think they they don't want to be compliant, but you know, I've never played at the top top level. I've never competed at the top top level. I don't really know what it is like to to play ninety minutes of that intense football and how my stomach's going to feel after it and one player is different to the next. So, you know, we get some players after the game that they all they want to do is eat. But then some players will just literally sit in the corner and sit on the phone and, and you know, slowly chug down the, the recovery shape. So it, it, it really is, it goes down to an individual level. And I I sort of seen that in the study where what I did because we, obviously, if you're conducting a study, we're not, we're not allowed to influence them in any way of what they're eating. It was their habitual intake and what they wanted to eat at that time. So... It's kind of interesting. You got let into some players' lives for for a week, so absolutely. Like I mean, it's fascinating to me as well because obviously there's a lot of dovetails between you know football or in America we call it soccer. Sorry about that. Um, and yeah. uh, you know, in basketball with with just the way that you know in terms of the athletes, the players, and everything else, and you know. This dovetails really into talking about your work in the English uh, Premier League players, where you, you know, in terms of evaluating the, the amounts of daily, you know, well, daily energy expenditure for one, but then again, the amounts of, you know, total protein and carbohydrate and fat that they were taking in. Can you walk listeners through that? Yeah. So, you know, the, one of the, the first, it was my third study of my PhD. And the aim of that study was to quantify the energy intake expenditure training load and match load during a seven-day in-season period. Um, originally, it was meant to be two weeks, but we felt like it was a little bit too invasive on the players um, because they I didn't realise how much how often these guys ate, to be honest. 
So I was getting picture messages, diary updates, having to do 24-hour recalls with them every morning. And, and towards the end of the study, they were probably getting a little bit stressed, which brings me on to why this study was the third study. I did it in I did the study in November 2015, I think it was. Um, and I'd been at the club for two and a half years then. And I think if you speak to anyone, if you go into a club in your first season or you've been there for six months or two weeks or a month and you try to do this with players... No chance, right? <laughs> got no chance. So I, we always had this study in mind, but... We had to. I had to build the relationships. I had to do build up those soft skills. I had to, you know, professional relationships, which they were trying to undergo with them, was was key to the study. And I think that's why you can write your methodology of a study to be able to repeat again. But if you don't have that relationship with the players, then it'd be very difficult. Yeah, it's amazing how the relationship part of this is really massive and as you mentioned i mean even for the general public to say hey i want you to take pictures of everything you eat for seven days or right. give me the dietary dec- recall 24 hours for seven yeah. days it's it's funny how you think it's easy after day one and day two and then by the time you get to day five or six it's, it, it becomes a real chore right I was doing that whilst also asking them to give me the the first the, the second urine of the day every day for two weeks as well so I think yeah. <laughs> and by the seventh day, enough's enough. Come on, and I and I and okay, I hold my hands up. I'll take seven days and I'm run with it. So we still did collect the energy and energy expenditure often for two weeks. Yeah, so we wanted to look if there was any week to week differences, which there wasn't much to be honest. Um, changes when I think we played another two competitive games that next week as well. So. Again, there wasn't much training going on. It was just match, rest, match. But what was what was good about this study was we we quantified the training load, so we knew how much they were doing, which wasn't a lot in training. It was you know you're performing two matches a week, which I've already mentioned, you know, ten to twelve k, so you know, ten to thirteen kilometers for players. Thirteen, fourteen percent of that is high intensity distance above, um, and we found that that they were fueling only really on the days. They weren't really going out of the way much. Maybe it was their evening meal, which was the majority of their carbohydrates, if they found out if they're in the squad for the next day. So if they find out they're in the squad for the next day of the trip before after the training session, they go home and then they have, you know, starter, main and dessert of all high carbohydrates with a fruit juice. Which, which was key for them to, to be able to come in and be have at least some sort of levels of glycogen the following day. But we found that they, they were expending just well three thousand five hundred and sixty calories a day. That was the mean energy expenditure, which my initial thoughts was very high because they've only played two games and the training sessions have been really low intensity. They haven't done much. So that, those games must be taking a lot out of them. This is average data, by the way, for the seven days. So yeah. the double-labeled water isn't sensitive enough to get day-to-day. Um, so we had to take the full week and then average that and then also take the total energy expenditure, the full week, uh, energy intake the full week and average that as well. But what I think is important to know from this study is the range 
of energy expenditures was 3,047 calories a day, right up to 4,400 calories a day. Yeah, it's a pretty um, wide margin, right? Yeah, so the guy, the guy who was this 4,400 calories, I sat down with him after study and said, listen, what are you doing? Because you're doing nothing in games. He's a centre-back. <laughs> nice. You're nothing in games. You've, you've only trained two sessions all week. Uh, you never even played in the first game. You were sub. Um, and so what are you doing? He, he, he was the heaviest player out of them all, but I was still like 4,400 calories is a lot. And he came out and said to me, he said, I've had a really busy week. I've got family over from his, from his, uh, from his home country. Interesting. So he's had a really busy week. He's got family over. He's been taking them around all the sites of Liverpool. He's been he's been playing with the kids and the young kids of the family at home. He's been up an extra hour longer than what he's usually awake. And I'm thinking he's getting his fifteen thousand steps in there. Huh? You're getting your you're getting all these extra calories that you're probably you're nowhere near consuming enough in this week because you've got family over from your from your other country. It's not because of your training load or your match load. So that for me was like, wow, it, it basically opened me up. We can monitor these players all we want with the GPS, you know, any, any monitoring blood, saliva, anything we want. But we, we, we only have them for something like 15% of the day when they're, when they're with us. But when we can actually monitor them and see what they're doing, we're usually on match day when we have them from 9 o'clock in the morning if a game's at 4 o'clock. They were in this particular season. They were reporting at nine o'clock, nine o'clock in the morning for breakfast. We've got them for breakfast pre-match, and then there's a post-match meal available for them as well. If it's a, an evening game, we've got them from nine o'clock in the morning again. Breakfast, very extremely light training session, more just like a walkthrough. Dinner, pre-match meal, post-match meal. So, like it's the it's the times when we're controlling it, we're they're getting in what we get, we what we want them to get in. So that was quite interesting for me. I mean, that's but, fascinating because it definitely is that piece of, you know, the athlete training load is one thing, and then there's a whole life load and the you know emotional yeah. stress and everything else, and even just the idea that people are coming over to visit, and all of a sudden, you know, the daily energy expenditure jumps by, you know, fifteen percent yeah. or whatever it might be. I mean, that's a a big, uh, you know, maybe a nice heuristic yeah. for people that are listening in to say, hey, if people are having, you know, family over, yeah, we got we got to bump yeah. up the overall intake just to cope with uh, visitors. Like he says, he was just he was just walking around Liverpool for, for for three days of the whole week. Like that's all he was doing when he was outside of training. I'm like, Jesus. but he, that's what that's what his goal was. So, but then if that takes us back to the original point, if we never had this relationships with the players. For me then to sit down with him after that and say, listen, why is yours so much higher than everyone else's when you've done nothing in training? You know, if we'd have taken that as, as the gospel truth and said, yeah, you burn 4,400 calories on average a day, here's a diet plan, and then he comes back four months later looking not very lean. A little soft, right? <laughs> a little soft after that, I think. He'll be saying, you told me to eat it. Uh, and I'll be like, yeah, I did, but I didn't mean you to get fat. Yeah, 
I mean, that's a phenomenal point. It really is so important to consider the rest of the day and the rest of the athlete's life. And as you mentioned, just being able to have that relationship with the athlete to be able to have that really frank conversation to say, hey, what's going on here? We got a bit of an outlier. Can you fill me in on the rest of your life and day? And and of course, obviously in that scenario, he does. And it really opens your eyes to, okay, this is this is what's going on. And Liam, in terms of when we look at football in general with that study, you know, in terms of daily energy intake, are there some general numbers here with, you know, carbohydrate intake or protein intake or caloric intake in terms of, a, you know, daily or, or weekly that were, you were observing in these uh, professional EPL players? Yeah, so I think I mentioned before that the mean energy intake was nearly 3,200 calories. That was their average. And then... Compared to their energy expenditure, was 3,560. Uh, statistically, it wasn't statistically different, but obviously if someone's under-eating by 400 calories a day, then over time they're going to have a negative impact on performance. That could be, again, that could be through the way, just error in my and other people's, the way we undertook and undertook the analysis on the on the food intake or they're under reporting that intake as well so they might not be showing us the things that they don't know consumes consumes calories like sure. drinks if they're one of the players might not know they're consuming a drink so they've not maybe not sent the pictures or forgot about it or they've had something immediately upon waking and forgot or anything like that or so or for example they've, they've had a chocolate bar and they don't want to say so yeah, for sure. that, that sort of things, I'm sure they happen, um, and that sort of that sort of stuff may just alter the results a little bit. But so my guess is because none of the players lost any significant weight over the week, they all stay the same. Some actually went up. That they are probably meeting the demands just, um, and that was seen by the change in. Carbohydrate intake, even on on match days, we were working off six point four grams per kilo. Typically, that's on average, but that's got an SD of you know two point two. So, I think one player was only eating four grams per kilo mm-hmm. on match day. So he, he's nowhere near fueling for that match on that match day. So that it, we took these results on an individual basis, and then we went and looked at that with that particular player to say, listen, on match day, your carbohydrate intake needs to increase. You had We had one player who's a centre midfielder um, and he was eating, I think he was nearly eight grams per kilo, if I remember correctly. But even on, on training days, they're, you know, on average, they're eating 4.2. So is, is that enough? My guess is probably not because in two days' time, they've got to go again. So I don't think that's enough to re- fully replenish their muscle glycogen. But it does show that they're subconsciously thinking about some sort of carbohydrate periodization, which I think is, is a good aspect to have, especially when then when you get into a one-game week. It just so happens that this team is... I don't think they've been, had much one-game week since we've, since we've done this study because of domestic and European competitions. Yeah, it's interesting to see you know, whether, you know, to hear your comments around, you know, if that sort of nutrition periodization is happening because players are, you know, inherently doing that based on how they feel through the week, whether it's, uh, you know, the impact of 
of the performance nutritionists like yourself on the team, whether it's the impact of even trends in, in social media or trends in nutrition, you know, in terms of lower carbohydrate and therefore they're deviating to certain uh, practices, um, you know, in, ter- in terms of your view on that, is there a, you know, collection of a little bit of, of all these different things happening? Is there a strategic yeah, strategy I think, here? Or? I think it is. And I think it goes back again to the, when did, when did the club have control of them and how good, how good is the sports nutritionist at designing the menus, which are there for the players? So is the menu, which is for breakfast, high carbohydrate and do they have those options to them? Is the chef, is the chef at the club? Is he fully aware of what they need to be doing on that particular day? Should the should the chef even have the team sheet in the morning to say, okay, these eleven players are starting. I need to put bigger portion sizes into their. I don't know. They need to have more pancakes in the morning, for example, of the morning of the match. So everything, everything comes down to. How much do people know, and how much how much should they be eating? Again, I, I, I think if if the player knows, then he's automatically going to do it, and that comes again with experience. If you've got, I'm sure, I'm pretty certain, and I and I know one player that we work with. If it was a if it was a seven forty five kickoff in the evening, so a typical European game at the time. He'd have two pieces of toast for his breakfast and drink tea for the rest of the day and wouldn't have anything else. And he says that's how he's played his entire life. And I'm talking top, top player. Mm-hmm. So who, who are we, if he's got to where he is now doing that, who are we to go and say, well, I think you should be in 10 times as much as that. <laughs> It definitely gets back to that question. And again, that sort of similarity with the, with basketball and players being able to seemingly almost get away with with you know genetics and gifts and things like that that's gotten to a certain level and yet when you look at their intake you just think geez you didn't even eat breakfast and we've trained we've trained for two hours and now we have an intense game and you know you've had uh, half a cup of rice um it just seems like a real opportunity here which which seems to be what you're implying right yeah well we had some players came in the the, the morning after a game and if if they hadn't sent me a photograph, I, I assumed that they'd either forgot or they'd not had breakfast. But that was what the 24-hour recall was for. So when they arrived at the training ground, I said, have you had breakfast? No. Are you going to have it now? No, I'm going to train. And you're like, no, you, you're on a recovery day anyway. So your best option now is to go upstairs and have some breakfast. And it, I, I just found it phenomenal, really, that that, that that was the case. But that was about educating them and that's sort of why we did this study as well because I think players can often go under the radar and if they they, they are um, then that can lead to performance decrements I've had a player in, in League 2 this year and I've been monitoring his skin folds all season and using the equation he's been coming out at he started the season I think it was 9.5% and he's finished the season on 7.9. And for me, I'm like, you're massively under-consuming of what you're eating because you've lost weight, you don't look like you're put on any lean, and your skin folds have plummeted throughout the season. And that's seen then speaking to the coach. He, he also agrees in his performance. 
So we've had to put in different nutritional strategies throughout his week, which ensure he's getting enough calories in the day and enough carbohydrates and enough protein to repair and recover. Yeah, I mean, that's it's that's a great observation and it's definitely something that, you know, I see in, in NBA players of just that, uh, you know, getting leaner as the season progresses and losing in terms of total mass and lean muscle mass. And you think, wait a minute, you know, we're just underfueling here. How can we start to get more on board for some of these guys, especially with all the travel yeah. and everything else, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, to be honest, I think he's he's one of the only League Two players that I've had to say, you need to eat more, you're not fat. So, uh, <laughs> it's always tough on a team when there's guys going in one direction and other guys on the team at the end of the buffet who yeah. need to go in another direction for sure. Um, yeah. And I was going to ask you, Liam, in terms of you know the team chef is is actually such a key player in all this, isn't it? I mean, how the food tastes. You know, they're the ones who are, are designing sort of the menus per se. You know, in conjunction with the nutritionist, but they have a lot of say in terms of you know the style of, of food that's being put out, and you know it's it's a first line person here that's delivering this uh, nutrition so how important is that relationship between you know performance nutritionist and chef because even in some major clubs in north america you know it's almost defaulted to the team chef to start making some of these decisions rather than even strictly the performance nutritionist listen i think it's key because if the food's not very nice they won't eat in the club unless it's made compulsory but then if they if it's not very nice, they're not going to eat very much of it. So the the, the chef needs to be a top-class chef in, in the professional club. Now, when and when and where and why they're eating certain things, I think that needs to be down to the relationship with the nutritionist and the chef. So I know our sports nutritionist at Liverpool at the time was James Moore, and he used to sit down with the chef once, a, once every two weeks and go through the plan for the next four weeks. You know, he, he was always working two weeks behind and then whatever the training load was like, which is why we sort of did these studies. So we can, okay, we've got a one game per week there. Uh, we're working Saturday to Saturday. On the Tuesday and Wednesday, we want to have a moderate carbohydrate lunch. So we won't be putting dishes like a pasta bake and loads of bread and all that available to them. There's going to be like lean meats with small amounts of pasta and then there's going to be things on the things on the top which shows them certain portion sizes which they should be having on that day depending on how much what, what their body weight is so that was a that was a big thing and even not even just the chef it's the it's just all the kitchen staff so the people who are serving the food people who are cooking the food people who are telling the people what to cook in the food you know but it's, it's ultimately down to the chef to to be able to get them to eat it so I think without the good relationship with the performance nutritionist and the chef, I don't think it's it could it could work very well. Um, you know, I'm I'm not a chef, and I don't think I don't think the nutritionist that uh, who was at Liverpool at the time, I don't he's not a chef, but he the, he says we need something with as maximum carbohydrates as we can. We're playing a game tomorrow. You know, he can make up things, and we were putting in different different strategies like uh, low-fat apple crumble and custard the evening before games to get them to eat that that sort of dessert. And we, we had one of the chefs go into, go into individual players' houses and teaching the wives how to cook, so what they're cooking for them. And then they have a schedule given to them on you know what sort of things they should be having on each day. 
That's tremendous in terms of being able to influence the environment, not only at the club, but then, yeah, with family members and everything else is, you know, phenomenal in terms of being able to do that. So, you know, great, great point there. Yeah. So for me, me, I look into it from both. I look from a sports science and a sports nutrition perspective because I think they go, I don't think it should be separate because if you look at any sports scientist, the, the nutritionist is very, very rarely, maybe at the top five clubs in England, they will be there all the time. So a lot of the time, it's the sports scientist who's there. Mm-hmm. And he's he's given the protein shakes out. He's given the recovery recovery packs out. He's the one, I don't know, telling the, telling the chefs what, to, what, you know, what time they can have the meals on the bus on the way home because not everyone's clued up as much as, as what, the performance nutritionist is and by all means they probably have a performance nutrition in but they will be in maybe two days a week in england and they have to work around that yeah it is it is amazing considering all the demands and all the potential gains of of that can be had and you know i've been fascinated by all the work that you guys have done and you know in terms of quantifying all this and with football and you know so much dovetailing in terms of basketball and you know i recently had dr samuel impey on the podcast discussing this concept you know fueling for the work required which obviously with his work with james morton and you know your relationship with uh with them as well so you know in a team sport concept and i was asking sam a little bit about this you know you've you've touched on it here a little bit in terms of some auto regulation that happens throughout the week in terms of lowering through the week and then obviously higher on match day you know, compared to endurance, are there potentially, you know, just as many gains to be had? Is there a significant amount of gains to be had? Is this something that's happening just intuitively from the players? Or, you know, what are your thoughts there on, on fueling for the work required when it comes to team sport athletes? Well, with regards to your last point, I think it is very much intuitively with the players. What is, there's one more interesting point on the, the W labelled water study, which we did. So, on the last day, which was day seven, they the two games we studied were home games. On the last day we stood, the last game we studied was an aw- the day before an away game, so they travelled. Now their energy intake on that training day was higher that was higher than any of the other training days in the week before the days before the games. So that for me again it shows how much control the clubs. Number one, chefs, the nutritionists, the sports scientists, they have over over this. And even the manager, because if the manager says, no, we're going to travel on the day instead, okay, but you you could be sacrificing without traveling. And I get the aspect of you know, the, the stress of traveling and things like that, but without traveling, we're missing out on 1.5 grams per kilo for every player because they're not having that extra meal, which they're having on the away trip with us. Um. So it, it all reverts back to that. I think they do understand, but I think with endurance athletes, they they understand to a greater extent the benefits of what, not only what high-carb days do for you, but also low-carb days, um, and when to manipulate them during their microcycle or mesocycle or, or even day. So you can probably find if they go on two rides in the day, they might go out in the morning completely depleted and have the ride then and then start fueling up for their afternoon ride which is going to be a lot a lot quicker and need a lot more 
a lot more power output from that. So I think that naturally footballers have got more intuitive and that auto-regulation over time. And I think you can see that a little bit from uh, one of Tom Riley's papers. He looked at energy intakes and expenditures back in 1979. And off the top of my head, protein intakes were around one gram per kilo. It's going off subject a little bit, but no, I think in my study there were 2.6 grams per kilo. Yeah, it's, so am- it's amazing sh- how the environment has changed that, isn't it? In the last couple of decades, of just protein is really accounted for now, isn't it? Now, now these players are now so much more aware of the benefits of protein, either through personal education or, you know, I don't know, marketing from from protein firms or, or whatever it is. Yeah, peers and social media and the whole collection of everything, right? And into the game and, and me more aware and research. But these guys are so much more aware. Instead of just having a bowl of pasta, they're having the chicken breast with a bowl of pasta as well. Or yeah, so I think I think it's just come so much more from from just you know just just go out there and eat pasta and potatoes because that's what you need. That's what you need for energy. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic, and definitely um, you know I had Trent Stellingworth on not too long ago, and he'd mentioned that you know athletes train. 200 to 300 times a year but they eat 1400 to 1600 times a year so there's a lot of room in there to to influence and and liam on that note as we as we wrap things up here you know when we look at the evolution of performance in this sort of area you know where do you see things going in the next three five even ten years time well i think now this is gonna it's gonna take a have to take a very good relationship with either a head coach or it's gonna get done in in an academy setting first, or maybe even a semi-professional team that might be training full-time. But we still don't actually know what what a training session is costing a player in muscle glycogen. So we're, again, we're giving these recommendations out based on work rate data through GPS and, and semi-automatic cameras. But we don't actually know what the top, top players are burning in a, in a typical training session. So he might the, tra- the player might do five and a half k in a training session, and he's training for seventy minutes. Now he might be he might cover eight hundred meters high speed running in that session, or he might not cover any high speed running at all, and a lot of his work be accelerations, the accelerations, which is more the intensive access to the sport. Um, but do either of those two training sessions, if that's a different training session, so more of an intensive training session, is that affecting muscle glycogen more than the, the what the extensive session is? Or is the extensive session, that's the one that's depleting the muscle glycogen? So should we be providing more carbohydrates after that session than the Tuesday session? And is the Tuesday session where we can get a lot of adaptations, where we can you know not provide as much carbohydrates and restrict it after training? And then also I think that how is that affected then during the week? So if we perform a full week's worth of training, if we can then biopsy players or students or whatever it is, you know, how is how is their muscle glycogen affected each day? So we mentioned it a little bit before. So you asked me if if the if the basketball players are have two days in between the games, are they going into the next game with, with muscle glycogen? The answer is we don't know because we've not studied it yet. So is what is the four point six grams per kilo 
what these lads are eating on the training days in between the games enough to maximise the muscle glycogen stores to go back in. Now, we assume so because they're not, we don't see any significant performance decrements, but are we missing a trick by, by not doing it? Um, and then what I'd want to then know is, so for example, in a one game week, is is the carbohydrate intake on that Tuesday and Wednesday, if we have a low-carb day, is that going to augment the molecular regulators, for example, mitochondrial biogenesis? Is that going to decrease it? Because in football, we don't know. We know in cycling, we know in, we know in endurance running that it does, but in, in football training, we don't actually know if that works or not. But it's something that we're implementing just because we think it's working because it's a sport. But in my opinion, football is a lot more complex than endurance sports. So you have to have a lot more for it in order to try to do that and then I think lastly what is the chronic effects of this if we do that for an entire season you know what what is the are we getting increased fitness adaptations from that from training low every Tuesday every Wednesday or are we getting have we had more illness instances this season for example if we've been doing that compared to previous seasons when we've not been doing it. Because, as you well know, we've trained with low, low muscle glycogen and low glycogen availability. Then the players are more likely to get ill. So there's, there's finding the right balance, I think. I think that those, I think there's three or four studies within that area there that we can look at. Liam, this is uh, fascinating stuff and definitely an area that I'm obviously really keen in and i could i could ask you questions for for hours and hours here but i want to respect your time because i know you're a busy man and you carved out some time here to be with us well, today so you know definitely really appreciate you making some time and you know where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your fantastic work yeah so i think i think like most people probably twitter is the best the best way of contacting me it's uh i think the handle is liam underscore anderson five off the top of my head if not i can give you the link to put it in any bio or anything like that after this, after we're finished. Fantastic. Well, we'll definitely include that in the show notes. And again, Liam, massive thank you for taking the time out today and uh, best of luck with the rest of the season. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Bose Performance Podcast. If you enjoy the content, please consider subscribing on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform. Show your support. And it's also a tremendous help to the show and helps us to continue to attract high-quality guests. If you haven't heard, my new book, Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance that is revolutionizing sports, is out. And I'm pleased to announce we actually hit the Amazon bestseller list in Canada and in the U.S. in the sports medicine, physical medicine and rehab and holistic medicine categories. So you can find out more info on that and the expert insights athleteevolution.org that's athleteevolution.org and of course you can pick up a copy on Amazon, Barnes & Noble Chapters Indigo, Waterstones or your local book sellers awesome, if you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode you can reach out on Facebook Instagram or Twitter at Dr. Bubs and thanks again folks for listening and we'll see you all next week with more expert insights
The Dr. Bob's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bob's Performance Podcasts.